Hello, and welcome to the Power Your Advice podcast. The Power Your Advice podcast is designed to bring financial advisors new ideas, why those ideas should be considered, and how to implement them into your business. This podcast is brought to you by Advisorpedia, the best place for advisors to grow their minds and businesses. And now, please join your host, Doug Heikinen. Welcome to the podcast. We are here live at the FSI One Voice Conference in Dallas, Texas with Anand Saker, Vice President, Practice Management at Fidelity Investments. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Doug. Vice President, Practice Management of Fidelity. So you're seeing a lot of what's going on there with advisors and what they're doing on their business side. Yeah, there, there is a lot going on these days um, as, as far as our interactions with advisors. And I think there's a few things that we're noticing from a trends perspective right now that is top of mind for advisors. Um, I'll just talk about maybe a few of them. That'd if, be great. If we can yeah. get started there. Um, first and foremost, I think advisors are really looking to try to get their time back. You know, our uh, research has shown that advisors spend roughly about only 50% of their time in front of their clients. And that is not desirable in any ways. If you think about where they get their joy and what they do each and every day, it's being in front of their clients and serving these clients well. And so we um, aspire to change that and change that to perhaps 80%. In order to get there, they have to be able to rethink perhaps how they're doing their compliance, how they're doing their trading, um, what's their support structure to be able to provide them and enable them to do that. It's getting things off their plate, including maybe even managing the investments. So that's a, a big opportunity for advice. And the reason why I think that's a big opportunity is it helps then to the secondary, which is helping them grow. They want, they have a desire to grow, yet if they can't get time back in front of their clients, they won't be able to drive deep intimacy with their clients to be able to then drive loyalty, which drives referrals. And so that's a huge opportunity as, as we see um, some of our advisor conversations that we've had. What are some of the things you're seeing that are sucking their time? Yeah, so I'll give you just uh, one example. I was talking to an advisor recently and he was telling me that, that he was actually executing trades. You know, he would come out of a meeting and, and that's just not, a, you know, a, a wise use of that individual advisor's time, right? They want, I mean, perhaps have somebody in, in your staff in the meeting that could be doing the execution. You know, one of the things that I think about um, our profession is, is in the midst of what I hope is an evolution is the professionalization of the industry. And what I mean by that is if I think about the medical field, um, the medical field has a parallel here where doctors really try to aspire to work at what they would term at the top of their license. And what I mean by that is, is working the top of the license would mean that you know, the doctor doesn't need to see every patient. Perhaps it's a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant, but even if I think about my own experience walking into a doctor's office, there's somebody there that does the scheduling. There's somebody there that takes care of any billing, follow-up, so on and so forth. Maybe that's the same person as scheduler. There's a nurse that takes my vitals and other um, sort of you know, elements, maybe even gives me a shot or vaccination. And then I might or might not see the doctor. I might see just the physician's assistant or maybe the nurse practitioner. Even if I call in into the doctor's office, do I get the doctor every time? No, most of the time I don't. Yet our industry, I think, prides itself, a lot of times advisors pride themselves on being the, the first call and the person that answers the call. And that's a big thing that is, I think, a misnomer, is are you leveraging your entire system around you, both the staff in your firm and perhaps outside your firm, the ecosystem? So as an example, you know, are you leveraging perhaps outsourced investment solutions and trading solutions and or you know, using staff to do their trading as just one example. Compliance is another one that is a headache for many advisors and especially firm principals uh, that own their firm, their independent firms. What, can, what steps can advisors take to look at their whole time of the day 
and make improvements to it. Yeah, you know, a simple exercise is just do a two-week time study. Find out where you're spending time and find it also, I think a great um, observation might be to just ask um, yourself, like, where, where am I getting joy in my day? Is it being out, you know, perhaps out with clients at events, you know, golfing, whatever it is, and or is it preparing for that meeting? Where are you getting the most greatest amount of joy in what you're doing? And as much as where are you actually spending the time? Two weeks is all it takes to be able to assess what could you perhaps be thinking about and doing differently? And how could you perhaps find solutions to do those things differently? What are you seeing about the advisor investor experience over the last two years? What's changed and what's going to stay and what's going to not yeah. stay? Oh, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I can remember back to five years ago talking to an advisor, um, a, for a large firm, actually here, located here in Dallas, Texas, headquartered here in Dallas, Texas, where we are. And what was fascinating about this firm is this firm uh, decided to go out and interview or survey every single client they lost over a five-year period of time. This was five years ago. And they found that the number one driver of them losing clients was the client moved out of state, away from where their advisors were here in Texas. And what was fascinating about it is, you fast forward from that moment in time, five years ago, where they uncovered this, they decided to change the perception of the investors to a virtual model. So they started to create the perception, we can interact with you just as effectively, not face-to-face as much virtually. So they, they evolved their technology, they evolved the experience, every aspect of it they had to evolve to make sure that they could actually deliver in a virtual way to, this, to these clients. Fast forward to two years ago, when, you know, if you think about it, they were really well positioned to be able to deliver on that virtual experience. So I think one thing, this firm had the foresight to be able to anticipate to some degree, perhaps, this virtual model, I think an acceleration of that model across the country, if I think about it. So advisors don't have to be located in the same state as the investors they work. That's number one. I think the number one observation I've noticed is, is you know, I have clients that, uh, you know, perhaps live in Massachusetts, had clients that lived in Massachusetts, are retiring down in, uh, down in Florida for at least four months of the year, maybe even permanently, because of state tax reasons and or other reasons, warmer weather, so on and so forth. Now they can actually retain that relationship uh, just as well. The second thing is, is that I think technology has enabled um, everything from digitization of service. How can you perhaps you know, ramp up new account opening, the forms, all of those things have been digitized better than ever before. And I think that's going to create a much more frictionless client experience um, um, process. Everything from money movement to new account opening. So I think the frictionless aspect of the experience. And I think the other, uh, other piece that it has definitely um, changed is from, from an advisor investor experience is investors became more, um, more interested in advice than ever before because of healthcare issues, concerns. And it brought to the forefront everything from estate planning and all of these things. So I think the leaning in on do I have my house in order from an investor perspective has increased the need from advisors um, significantly. I mean, we're, many of our advisors have, have seen the fastest growth I've ever seen in the last two years than ever before because of that need for advice. And I think that's going to continue. I think there's an awareness around making sure your house is in order that I think has been really, I think, a positive thing from an advisor perspective. Scary for investors, uh, for sure, though. On our site, one of the things we see people writing on is, is client segmentation, which has always been a big thing. Is it still Yes, it is. And I think one of the drivers of why client segmentation is an issue is because the average cost from our analysis, um, which we've done deep um, insights with our clients, is somewhere around five to $7,000 to serve a client on, per year, uh, average household. 
And what's challenging about that is if you think about your compliance, your overhead, your um, costs you know, to serve your clients on just transactional stuff, the technology you maintain, all of those overhead um, expenses, including if you work in for a broker dealer, perhaps all that expense as well, makes it challenging to even break even um, for some clients. And so, and, and what we find is, is that roughly if we break up a, um, your client base into quartiles, based on revenue. If you were to store all your clients, suppose you had 100 clients, you took the top 25 of them, the top 25 are roughly about 60% on revenue on average. The bottom 25% is on average about 5% of revenue. So you have to be able to say, all right, so for that bottom 25%, can I actually create a profitable solution? What's fascinating about our, our work and our research with our clients shows that on average, advisors are running a nonprofit for 50% of households. Oh my gosh. And there's a huge opportunity. Let me be clear. We need more pro bono work in our industry. Yeah. I don't think, though, we offer the pro bono work the way we're doing it structurally. We need to do financial literacy. There's a lot of things that advisors can do to, to lift individuals up um, from, from a societal perspective. I don't believe, though, it's under the current structure, cost structure, that we have today. So advisors have to segment because they want to be able to delight and deliver to that top 25% that drive the 60% of revenue in a differentiated way to drive loyalty and future growth and clients that are similar to that, at the same time find democratized solutions that can deliver advice down to the bottom 25% as well. And actually really the bottom 50% based on our research. So thinking about that nonprofit and thinking about their value proposition and pricing. So tie all those things together for me and do they need to relook at their pricing model? Yeah, they, they do. And I think it's challenging. And the reason why it's challenging is if I think about the reoccurring revenue streams of, say, fee-based model, right? It's it's more advantage, uh, advantageous from an M&A perspective. You'd rather buy an advisory practice that had reoccurring revenue that was fee-based than one that was perhaps a flat fee or project-based type uh, model, right? It's, it's, that's one driver. The other thing is psychologically, it's, a, it's a, a shift, a mental model shift for them to say, you know what, can I in essence go with a subscription model? The investor's already gone there. Um, the subscription economy is here. It's, it's not going away anywhere. I think the opportunity for advisors to say is for perhaps a younger population, perhaps for those investors that have less affluence, can I um, create a structure where it's perhaps $1,200 a quarter you know, that gives you to a profitable rate, if, assuming your costs are around $5,000. So how can you perhaps th rethink, you know, that, that, that um, you know, what is your break-even point and how could you structure your fees to be able to at least um, minimally break even? Let's talk next gen because it's coming and it's an issue. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? And what are you prescribing? Yeah, so I'd say a few things. Uh, when we think about uh, wealth transfer and we think about how advisors can engage the next generation of investor. There's a bunch of things that they're, uh, I'd say, fearful over. Um, you know, if I, if I think about it just structurally, back to what I just said, right? So let's say you have a, a client that is hypothetically a million dollars. You have a household that is a million dollars. They have four kids. And the advisor's thinking in, my, in, my, in their head, you know, I am going to now have four clients that are each going to have $250,000. Is it worth it to even talk to them? So that's one mental model thing that they have to get over. Not realizing that each one of those households of those four kids could have wealth as well on their own, independent of their parents. So that's the first misnomer that they need to get over is mental model number one is, is that there's no wealth in that next generation. That's the first thing. And that that wealth will not continue to grow. That's the other piece. The second thing is, is that they have to get it out of their own way to some degree around their, how they engage and interact that primary decision maker and, and, and that family that they manage the money for. Oftentimes what will happen is, is that 
they may be interacting with that family and they may be actually perpetuating an issue that actually creates a gap between generation one and generation two. And let me explain uh, what I mean by that. Let's say that they're engaging with that uh, patriarch matriarch of the family and the the patriarch matriarch culturally or or whatever might say, you know what, I don't want to disclose to my kids how much money I have. This is very true of, of certain cultures. I can speak for, you know, personally, uh, the Asian Indian culture, that's very true of that culture. And what I find is really important is, is that there's a, a, a lot of the root of that also is in this hierarchy. You know, sort of parent-child hierarchy, you know, where the parent has, in essence, taught everything to the kid and continues to expect, even into adulthood, to be able to, um, you know, set expectations for what that kid should and or could, should not do for that child. Even though they're adults, there's still an expectation that they are to deliver that advice. Somewhere along the way, though, those hierarchies reverse. And I had this happen to me personally. My mom had a stroke three years ago, and as she had a stroke, you know, up to that point, my parents would be almost constantly, in essence, providing me advice. They, the role started reversing where they asked me for advice. They needed to downsize from a, from a condo that was three floors to one that was single floor living. And there was a financial decision component of it, but there was some, as much an emotional decision related to this decision, right? To go to single floor living. And as, as much also a conversation um, that had to happen around, you know, all the things around my dad becoming a caregiver and my mom was historically the nurturing type in our family. And that's a very big different expectation. All of that manifests manifest itself though, if you're an advisor, to lean in into those types of conversations and being perceived differently. Now, one of the things that I find is that advisors will be narrowly um, perceived and put into a box around the money. So my, the situation I just unfolded was you know, a money issue, but then it's an emotional issue. There's all sorts of questions like, for instance, if you're going to single floor living, um, do you have grab bars? for instance. Do you have um, carpeting versus harbor floors? We know the harbor floors can be bad because people inevitably will put rugs and that's not good um, for individuals that have walking issues, um, or mobility issues. And so all of these things, you know, an advisor can be at the center of those um, to really help demonstrate, gosh, I can advise you on the finances, but I want to help you think through some questions that you should be asking. And I'm going to bring in those trusted experts. So the next generation conversation can unpack a lot more, but at the heart of it, is this a concept that we like to call at Fidelity creating peership. It's this conversation around how can you help parents and child really, um, actually have fruitful conversations much earlier in life, even as, early, as old as five, six years old. Are you actually able to engage them in conversations where they're actually becoming peers on certain topics? And obviously in an age-appropriate way, but along that journey, teaching them that it's okay to be transparent and, and actually ask questions of that first generation around what are the reasons for why you know, transparency is an issue. What are the, and a lot of times it might be, gosh, I don't want a, you know, a sense of entitlement or I don't want to perhaps you know, um, set my, um, my kid down the wrong path. And it could be because of where they got their own money. Did they, did they create themselves? What were the things that they learned when they were growing up? And they're passing that on to the next, the sins of the past are coming forward to the future. So I think that's a big opportunity for, for advisors as they think about next generation. Leaning in is a great way to put it because there's more layers to the next gen than you ever think about. There's cultural, there's multicultural, there's getting to know your clients uniquely so you can deal with them in the way that's appropriate. Yes, absolutely. And, and if I could just add one more thing about this leaning in, I'll give you just one more example in case study. So my wife's uncle um, was a geotechnical engineer in the state of uh, Vermont. And he was, uh, you know, pretty uh, well-regarded in the state. He was able to get some big contracts for highways and other things. And 
he asked me for some help with trying to think through a succession plan. And, 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 I, and I was taken back a little because I help advisors every so often with their own succession plans. And I asked him, did you talk to a financial advisor? And his comment to me was, is, no, I don't think of him that way. I think of him as my money guy. And this is the issue. And are you willing to ask questions of, of your clients? Let's say you have an entrepreneur. Are you willing to ask them questions around, you know, what have you been thinking about from your exit strategy perspective? Not just from a retirement income planning perspective. And that's like the myopic focus of an advisor is the financials, but asking a broader set of questions. And then bringing in trusted advisor because he asked this, um, my wife's uncle asked me, an accountant and an attorney. Any three of us could have introduced a financial advisor that only exclusively focuses on entrepreneurs who are ex you know, in the midst of transition. And he would have been unseated, that financial advisor. Alan, great insights, great advice. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Doug. Please follow us for all the latest updates on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, all at Advisorpedia. For everybody at Advisorpedia, our partners, Integrated Partners, Flyer Financial Technologies, and the Power Advice podcast team, this is Doug Heikkinen.